It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. I'm delighted you're tuning in today because it's a special broadcast. I think they're all pretty special, but today I just wanted to deviate just a little bit and share with you something that's been dear on my heart. As we've gone through Thanksgiving this week, we've been around a lot of family. Uh, I don't know what your plans were, but our house was full. Uh, then we visited family over with grandma and and at her place, and we had a house full of people. And through all of this, I know it can be a very stressful time. It can be a, uh, maybe a difficult time if you find yourself in the kitchen for long hours. But what I wanted to do is just uh, recap today uh, the spirit of gratitude, a little bit about why I'm so grateful. Because I don't know if those of you who've been listening for quite some time now, if you've really had a chance to hear my own personal testimony, I want to share a little bit about that with you today and just uh, you know, I know Revelation chapter 12, 11 talks about that, the power of our testimony, the blood of the lamb and the power of our testimony. I have a testimony I want to share with you today, but I, I before I do, I want to just explain a little bit why I'm so grateful to be here in these United States of America. I know we've been through thick and thin together. This past election was not an easy one. It probably divided some households, divided friends. I know those of you who have been on Facebook for quite some time, you said how many people unliked you or liked you and all those issues over a very uh, um, polarizing election season. And so I just wanted to get back to the root a little bit of why we should be grateful and be united as Americans, to appreciate our foundation, to appreciate who we are and what has been given to us, lives that have been sacrificed, uh, the, the cause that drove men and women to give their lives, that a generation behind them could walk across their backs in the mud and experience and have the freedoms that we have today. I mean, it's like they laid down face forward in the mud to build a bridge for us that we could walk across on their labors, on their tireless efforts, their sacrifice, blood, sweat, and tears, that we'd have a nation that we have today. And often we take it for granted. Often we take these freedoms so for granted, and then we become like a spoiled generation that seems to be very entitled. It's all about me. It's all about self-aggrandizement. It's all about what have you done for me lately, my self-actualization. It's all about me, as opposed to what can I do for others? How can I lift those up around me, which I truly believe is part of the spirit of thanksgiving. It's not about just filling my belly, but rather about blessing those around me in a spirit of thanksgiving. And let me just tell you a little bit about why I'm so grateful for this nation that we live in, despite its challenges. You know, if you think about just from the beginning, even if we go back to, say, the Mayflower, for example, you know, those 41 English colonists that were aboard the Mayflower who signed the Mayflower Compact, those specifically, they did so November 11th of 1620, William Bradford and his crew, they lost over half, almost half, I should say, of their family members, their friends, not only making the voyage across the Atlantic, but then just trying to get through that first winter, they lose almost half of their friends and family in order to make that journey and in order to set up the first colony, or the, at least one of the colonies. I know Jamestown had already been uh, well underway by that point, but in the northern territories there, and they gave so much that we, we that you and I would have so much. It's a lot like the, the heart of our Savior who would go to the cross for us and a sacrifice that we still can't possibly truly fathom 
to this day. And I know these were men and women of devout faith. That you know, even if you look back at the New England Primer, they wrote this in 1687 to educate the American colonies on how to read and write so that they could read the Bible and keep the government accountable to God. Because at the Mayflower Compact, for example, they signed it declaring America to the for the advancement of the Christian faith, to the glory of God. And so, well, how do you do that if you have an uneducated people? They needed to know their Bible. And so if you go back to the New England Primer, you look at the curriculum, and you see it all was Bible-based so that people could understand their Bible, navigate their text, hold the government accountable to it, and understand their rights, rights that were given to them by God. Edmund Burke, who was an outstanding orator, an author, a leader in Great Britain between 1729 and 1794, He defended the colonies in Parliament, and this is what he said. He said, There is but one law for all, namely that law which governs all law, the law of our Creator. (laughs) Can I get an amen on that? The law of our Creator supersedes. It is above all laws of men. And in fact, it is where the source of law that we have it today even originates from. You know, this is a nation that is under God, and we got to remember that. I just briefly, let me take you through some of that history. February 7th of 1954, there was a great pastor. He was a, the Reverend George M. Dougherty. He was a pastor of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. He's giving a message that day, and one of those who happened to be in the audience was President Dwight D. Eisenhower. And the message was titled, A New Birth of Freedom. And in his message, he suggested that the words under God be added to the Pledge of Allegiance. It was to remind us that we are under God, that we're accountable to a holy authority, to something much greater than ourselves. And it really needed to define who we were. And the the pastor was very passionate about it, so passionate that President Eisenhower took those words to heart. Well, on June 14th of 1954, President Eisenhower then signed the bill into law, officially adding those words under God into the Pledge of Allegiance. And then he said, in this way, we are reaffirming the transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage and future. In this way, we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons, which forever will be our country's most powerful resource in peace and war. The characteristic and definitive factor in the American way of life is summed up in those two powerful words, under God. What a powerful statement to make, that the whole definitive factor of the American way of life was defined, its characteristics defined in two words, being a nation that is under God. But the thing is, is it didn't start there. Some think, well, you go back to Abraham Lincoln and when he gave his Gettysburg Address and and maybe he was emotional in the moment and he said that under God and he added that into the Gettysburg Address. And, uh, you know, I, I get that. But the interesting thing is some of his writings before that, although one of the written copies didn't have those two words in it, other written copies did. But it goes way before Abraham Lincoln. It actually does define the American way of life. In fact, if you look back through America's history, well, it was uh, two words that were used often to describe the American way of life. In fact, Ferdinand Isabella used that term. John Smith, as he was writing back to Queen Anne, used that term, that we are under God. William Bradford used it frequently. Even DeSoto, when he was writing to Jamestown. John Hancock in 1775. Benjamin Franklin used it frequently in 1775. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, the list goes on and on of our founding fathers who used that term, that we were a nation that is under God. In fact, if you go through all of your history, 
historical writings, you'll notice that 21 of our founding fathers used the term that we are one nation under God when addressing the affairs of America. But it even goes back earlier than that, which is quite awesome. The term under God actually goes all the way back to the 13th century. In fact, Henry Bracton, who's the father of modern law, wrote that the king is sub deo et lege, under God and under law. This is etched above the Harvard Law School. It's amazing when you really look at how far back this goes. That core philosophy actually becomes uh, part of the basis of contention when you see Sir Edward Cokes as he's uh, debating with King James in 1620, and he's reminding the king that the king is under God and under law. In fact, that conversation is then etched on the doors of the Supreme Court to this day. And that conversation happened in 1620. He had to remind the king that if we are not under God and under his law, then a nation will fall back into tyranny. And in fact, it was during the Nuremberg trials that it was on November 20th of 1945 that went through October 1st of 1946, that during those trials, they would have to define that what the Nazis did was morally wrong. And that nations had a moral responsibility to stand up against this type of immorality. That their immorality was wrong. That they were going against humanity. That it was an attack on humanity. That that was wrong. And so how do you define that? Well, here's what he says. This is the judge who happened to preside over that case Judge Robert H. Jackson, he says, We do not accept the paradox that legal responsibility should be the least where power is the greatest. We stand on the principle of responsible government declared some three centuries ago to King James by Lord Chief Justice Coke, who proclaimed that even a king is still under God and the law. And he stated those powerful words on June 10th, 1945. You see, we are a nation that is under God. And because we have declared that we are under God, we have received the blessings of heaven as a gift back to us. He has been in the affairs of men. And whichever side of the election that you were on in this particular election cycle, we have to get back to our roots, that we are a nation under God. And in that, we have a responsibility to be a people that are accountable to a living God. Let me tell you something that happened very powerful in Scripture. In 1 Kings 8.28, there's a great illustration of excitement to be in the presence of God, to have a nation that is accountable to a living God. At this particular time, uh, King Solomon is seeing the temple uh, come to life. It's in the seventh month. It's a Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles are happening. The Ark of the Covenant is being brought in to the temple And King Solomon is crying out to God. Here's what he says. King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen, they could not be counted or numbered. This is kind of like an Acts chapter 4 moment where they are giving so much to the Lord. They are giving him everything. They can't even count it all. And then the Holy Spirit moves. Here's how The Spirit of God moves, checks this out, in verse 10, it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And this is what Solomon responds with. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart 
Oh, praise God. I think about the prophet Joel who did the same thing. He gathered all of Israel together, man, woman, child, young, old alike, to fast, to celebrate, to praise Almighty God in solemn assembly, to recognize that it is He who provides. He's the one who has given us the rain. He's the one who's given us the harvest. He's the one who has brought so many blessings that we overlooked frequently. He's a big God. We worship a big God. I think about in Job chapter 38, verses 31 to 33, Amos 5, 8. He talks about how he places the Pleiades in the sky, that he holds it with his hand. That's amazing. We worship that big of a God. Do you know that the tidal radius of these seven stars that make up the Pleiades is 43 light years across? Now, for those of you who are science nerds like me, let's just talk about that for a moment. God says that he holds it there, that he placed it there, that all of the heavens declare his majesty, that he put them all there one by one, that they stand up and praise him. But his very hand that holds this, it's 43 light years across. Now, again, for you science nerds out there, you know that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles per second. That means every time I snap my fingers, you have just gone around the globe seven and a half times. That's how fast light is traveling. That means if you go that speed of light for a year, you will travel 5.88 trillion miles. So then you are traveling at 5.88 trillion miles for 43 straight years. That's how far apart the Pleiades is that God says that he holds there in his hand. And then it says that the whole universe declares his majesty. You know that our Milky Way galaxy, this huge city of stars, is so big that at the speed of light, it's going to take you 100,000 years just to travel across the Milky Way galaxy. And it's just one of many in the universe. In fact, there's so many stars in the Milky Way galaxy that it would take you 2,500 years to count every star if you counted a star every second of every day. (laughs) So you look up and you see the majesty of how big our God is, the God that we forget to thank, the God that we forget to recognize his authority and his majesty. And R.C. Sproul says that. He says, men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. But here's another thing that's so amazing. We can look up and we can see the splendor of God, but then we can also look down and see the splendor of God. In fact, there's so much splendor of God, you may not even be able to see it with your eyes. They may be microscopic in level. In fact, there are over 3 billion codes in the human body through DNA. That's amazing. In fact, Dr. Michael B., he says, and he's a biophysics professor, by the way, he says that the human body is more complex than the earth and its entire ecological system, maybe even more complex than the solar system itself. <laughs> it is awesome. Psalm 139, 14 to 16 says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Jeremiah 1, 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. How about Isaiah 44, 2? This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, it is he who will help you. 
Do not be afraid, my servant, whom I have chosen. God knew us before he even made us. He saw the end before the beginning, Isaiah 46 tell us. That's why no child's an accident. That means that whatever situation you're going through, God is involved in those details. A sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his knowing. He knows the very hairs on your head. We have a lot to be thankful for because that means even the trials that we're going through, God has a plan and a purpose even through that. He tells us that in Ephesians 1.11, that he is working all things out according to his counsel. Romans 8 then tells us that he's working all things to the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. We are reminded over and over again, we have much to be thankful for, to give a spirit of thanksgiving before Almighty God. But I got to tell you, let me just add into my portion of the story, the reason why I'm setting you up with that is because I need you to know that we worship a big God who's been involved in the affairs of men since day one, as he created the earth, the heavens, and all that is in it. In those six days of creation, all of it pointed to Jesus Christ. He began with the end in mind, and he did that even in my life. He's doing it in your life. In 1973, during that year, you know, gasoline was 40 cents a gallon. The Sears Tower opened in Chicago. The U.S. withdrew its troops from Vietnam. Skylab was launched into space. Nixon declared, I'm not a crook during the Watergate hearings. And Billie Jean King had defeated Bobby Riggs at the Battle of the Sexes. Some of you may remember that. But it's also during that year, January 22nd of that year, when abortion became a constitutional right. And since then, 56 million babies have been aborted. That equates to 4,000 babies per day. That's amazing. And I got to tell you, I was almost one of those babies. Because in 1973, my mother was a sexually abused runaway. She had been abused horribly. And she ran away at 16 years of age to go and be on her own because she couldn't tolerate the pain anymore. She ran away to California, there got in with a, a group of, of people who were, they were all living together, they were drowning out their pains through drugs and alcohol, trying to escape all the emotional trauma they had endured. And so here in her effort to try to run away from being the victim of someone else, she ended up becoming the victim of herself and, and giving her body over to sins and, and pleasures and lusts of the flesh and all to drown out the pain that she was going through and trying to find someone who would truly love her, even though they were just using her. And so she got pregnant, and she had an abortion. She got pregnant again, had another abortion. She was devastated. Her body was being broken and beaten. She was losing her identity. She didn't know who she was anymore. She felt like she was worthless, unwanted by the world. And there was no way she was going to get into a church. And then she got pregnant again. And again, the young man said, hey, you know, I'm not ready to be a dad. You need to go take care of that. And on the way to the abortion clinic, God got a hold of her life. And she chose to keep that life. And I praise God that she did because yours truly is the one that she kept. And there was no red carpet awaiting her. There were no flowers and there was no parade saying, hey, well done, you've done it. You've made the choice for life. Oh, no, no, she had to go through the storm. And she had to fight day by day, hour by hour. And God brought her to a church. And she knew she wanted something different for her son. So she used to send me off to church. And then one day she did one of the boldest things I can remember where she took me and herself into that church. And just a few years later, we were baptized together. She gave her life to Jesus Christ and has never looked back. She has served now in church ministry. She has gone to be a missionary. That God had intervened in my life. She put me through seminary. I then went on to work at Focus on the Family, a national day of prayer for many years. Now I pastor a church that God promised 
and God delivered. He said, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten, and he did that for my mother. And because of that, because of God's faithful promise, I can be on the radio before you today declaring that God's promises are true, that Jesus Christ gives hope to the hopeless, that he saves those who feel like they are in such a hole that they cannot even get a glimpse of the sunlight. He brings light into those dark places. Our God is real. And I praise God that every life matters. Your life matters. He purposely designed you, whatever you're going through. Maybe you've had a really hard Thanksgiving, and maybe you didn't feel like you had anybody to love you. I want to tell you that there is a Jesus Christ who loves you, and he would have gone to the cross just for you. That's how much you mean to him. And I want to tell you that he would do it again, that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. He uses the broken. He uses the downtrodden. He tells us that in 1 Corinthians 1, that he uses the foolish to shame the wise. He uses the the weak to bring down the strong. That's who God chooses. He does it with purpose and intentionality that we not depend on our own strength, but we depend on him and him alone, that God has a plan for your life. And I think in Ezekiel 22, 30, he says, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. We do have a breach going on in America today. There are lives being lost, millions of babies still being lost. I could have been one of them. So I praise God for those of you who stand on the front line every day in defense of life. I praise God for the church. I praise God for the ministries. I praise God for the fathers who are standing for righteousness, for the mothers who have chosen life, for those who are reaching out to those mothers or soon-to-be mothers who feel like they have no alternative, who are embracing them with the love of Jesus Christ. I praise God for the pregnancy centers, even those right here in Colorado Springs, who are ministering to those moms who feel hopeless that they have a plan and purpose in Jesus Christ our Lord. To those fathers who have no idea how to be a dad. I didn't grow up with a father figure, and God then gave me five children. But it was almost not that way. Because while my wife was pregnant with our third, she was diagnosed with cancer. It was stage four cancer. It was filling her body. And she was pregnant at the time. So Satan wasn't done with us yet. And the doctors, I remember like it was yesterday, were trying to convince us to have an abortion to save mom because we already had two other children and we could lose mom potentially. And no, we gave it to the Lord. I can't say that my faith was perfect in that moment, but I I was clinging to Jesus Christ to do something, to do something miraculous, just like he had done for my mom in preserving my life as he reached down into our miry clay and lifted us up. He did that for us too. And my wife and I chose life. And you know, when she went to deliver that baby, that cancer in her cervix was completely gone. From stage four cancer to completely gone. She delivered a healthy, beautiful baby girl. And then as she battled the rest of that cancer, the doctor said, we'd never have another child. He ended up having two more. God is in the doctor proving wrong business. He's still a God of miracles. He's still a God who moves mountains. He's still a God who answers prayer. And your life matters. Whatever you're going through right now, you have a God who loves you. Even when you're in your darkest place, when you feel like it's hopeless. And I love that God gives us 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul tells us that I was to the point of breaking. He gave me more than I could endure, but it was all to his glory. If you're in that place right now, read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and be reminded that God even uses those thorns in the flesh, those difficult times, that you could be a minister for him to others 
who also may be going through a difficult time. So I want to encourage you to reach out and grab hold of somebody who may be going through a difficult time right now. Give them those loving arms. Give them those loving words. Be the arms of Christ. Be the voice of Christ. And let's minister to those around us. Let's heal some wounds. Let's be a people united. Let's get back to our roots that we are one nation under God. And let's watch God move in this nation like he's maybe never moved before. And we will watch revival sweep across this nation as churches get on fire for him, as homes get on fire for him, as we remember that our prayers are powerful and effective and that lives can be changed through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's real. And I want to encourage you, if you need a place to worship, you're invited to come worship with us. We'd love to worship with you, pray with you, whatever you're going through. You are a welcome guest in our fellowship. It's Calvary Fellowship, Fountain Valley. That's the name of our church. I'd love to fellowship with you. Our services are at 10 a.m. on Sunday, and we've got home fellowships throughout the week. In fact, I think we have five days covered with home fellowship groups. We do a lot of outreach into the community. We have fellowships for husbands and wives, moms, dads, children, youth alike. It's a beautiful community. We'd love to invite you to join us. It's 10 a.m. on Sundays. You can learn more about our ministry, Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, at calvaryfountain.com. Again, it's calvaryfountain.com. We hope to see you there. God bless.